I'd invite you to pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, this morning as we gather, as we uh, come to worship you, as we come to recognize the amazing truth in this season that you have indeed come to earth. Lord, there are wars being fought. There is darkness abounding in this world. And yet you have uh, shown with a ray of hope into this world. Lord, you've given us the opportunity to find hope in the midst of a hopeless world. This morning, we are gathered around the truth that Jesus has indeed come. We gather every week to celebrate that. And so this morning, as we look at this season, as our hearts are overwhelmed with uh, joy, but also overwhelmed with the reality of the life that we are uh, living in this world, Lord, would you uh, fill up our hearts by your Holy Spirit with hope? Even now, as we look to your word, would you fill up our hearts with hope? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If we have kids with us this morning, you can meet at the back of the sanctuary and we'll dismiss you up to kids ministry. And then I would invite you, church, to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We'll be working our way through the Gospel of Matthew this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Alex Culpepper. I am the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. And uh, what we do every week is we work our way through some Bible passage. And so if you don't have a Bible yourself, we have printed the passage for this week out in the bulletin. So if you received a bulletin when you came in, you can use this uh, to work your way through the passage with us. I want to talk to you about family trees. Family trees play an important role in helping us figure out our identity, right? And they are, are really important for shaping that. I recently was at a person's house and, uh, and I was, you know, just kind of observing. You know, I like to observe what, what people have in their house. And I was at this one individual's house, right? And, uh, and I was looking at his wall and I noticed like, the, like at the, in the center of his wall framed is uh, his family tree. He had like 10 generations uh, going back. He was looking at just, just the massive kind of history of his family. And now he had clearly done all of the research to be able to catalog that as well. And so I was just really struck by the fact that this person had such an identity focused in his family tree. Now, I've never done the whole 23andMe thing. I'm sure some of you have, right? But uh, I thought it would, you know, it would be interesting, right? It's striking to me that this guy would have... 10 generations framed in this central place in his house. So knowing like the kind of stock that you're from, right, is uh, as a part of identity formation. About 12 years ago, um, my brother, he had done some significant research on our family. He found out that the Culpepper family had some uh, significant ties to English royalty and also to the Anglican church when it was first formed, so that was very interesting. Uh, also, I don't know if you know this, but there is a Culpeper, Virginia, uh, a town. It's spelled differently than my name, but it's the same, the same source. Um, uh, so I figured out that my, my family were among the first to arrive in Virginia and settle in Virginia, so that's very interesting. My dad is from Virginia originally. And so, uh, so I've always assumed that, that, you know, that was 
part of my family's story and that my family was somehow intertwined in this English ruling class thing. And so, but like, I didn't make much of that, right? Uh, and I never thought about it until two months ago, somebody called me on the phone and they had done this like history lesson of Henry VIII and, uh, and all of Henry VIII's wives. And uh, I found out that uh, that person started the, the conversation by asking me, how much do you know about your family history? And it turns out that uh, surrounding one of my ancestors is all of this drama and intrigue related to one of Henry VIII's wives. So I won't go into too much detail on that, uh, but it's interesting to think that someone in my family was so close to one of the most pivotal people in Western history. Right? It's, it's interesting. So there's a human impulse to care about where we come from, right? So today we are starting a series that will carry us through the season of Advent, and that series is called Unlikely Story. In this series, we're considering all of, essentially, world history in a reality, like from one perspective, and the incredibly unexpected nature of the timeline of events and people that led to the coming of Jesus. Right, so imagine, like, imagine with me, we live in the state of Illinois, and we, we identify. <laughs> We're all very excited about that reality, aren't we? Uh, and we identify an existential threat to the existence of the state of Illinois. We identify something that could just utterly destroy our state. And, and so the leaders of our state get together and they say, you know what, we need to find someone to help us solve this existential problem. Otherwise, we're toast. We're not going to make it, right? Um, so where will most people naturally look for solutions to whatever that problem is? Well, your answer is going to be probably depends on the problem, right? Depends on what the problem is. But I can pretty much guarantee you that there will be three factors in finding this person. Money, education, and track record. Like those are the three things that anybody, like it does, I don't care what the problem is, those are the three sources that are going to tell us where to find the person to help us solve this really unsolvable problem. Those three markers are markers of achievement. They are basic metrics that help us kind of determine what is the likelihood of success that this person will be able to help us figure this out. And it's very interesting, God does not do things like that. <laughs> He doesn't solve problems the way that we solve problems. He doesn't pick the people that we assume should be picked. And so uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29, reinforces this reality. It says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast. Right? His story does not fit our expectations. Because if we could write the story, then we wouldn't need him. So, uh, so God's not interested in meeting our standards, but he's actually interested in defying our standards so that we might take notice of the things that he does with people and situations that we might, in other situations, overlook. So Matthew chapter 1 sets us up to explore this reality today. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. 
It says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is how Matthew opens his book. He wants us to know the roots of the one who is called Christ. Now, for those of you who don't know, Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title, like uh, John Palpent has the title Prince of Elburn. Christ, Christ is Jesus's title. Christos in Greek, it's uh, translated into Hebrew or translated from Hebrew more accurately. It is Messiah. Messiah is the word. And so, so Christ and Messiah, they are the, the same word. Uh, and what it's telling us, whenever we see that word, it's telling us something. It's giving us a message. It is telling us that Jesus is God's chosen king who brings salvation. It's essentially what the, the title Christ refers to, God's chosen king who brings salvation. So remember what I said earlier about a problem, right? The title given to Jesus reveals that there is a problem, right? The problem is, that there's a world alienated from knowledge of the one true God that does not know him. There's a world full of people who walk in darkness, who walk in rebellion against their creator under the influence of dark spiritual forces. And to the Hebrew people was given a promise that through them, God would send one called Messiah to bring hope to the hopeless, to bring light to those who walked in darkness, to set captives free, to save people from their sins. So the title Christ is saying, there is a problem and God has chosen someone to solve it. So this is important because because Matthew, as he's writing, he's writing to almost like exclusively a Jewish audience, which is why he starts with a genealogy Because for Jewish people, it is especially important to talk about who you come from. And so he is working through this genealogy to talk about the identity and ancestry of Jesus to help them understand something about Jesus. So before we look at the details, I'm going to take us to the end of the genealogy, the summary of the genealogy first, because the ending gives us the framework for the major movements of this incredibly unlikely story. So Matthew 1.17 says this. This is the end of the genealogy. It says in verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Matthew says there are three major movements in this story. There's Abraham's timeline, There's David's timeline, and there's the deportation. And so Matthew is highlighting for us the significant figures in each timeline to help us understand Jesus' roots, and every single timeline defies our expectations. So let's start with Abraham. Matthew 1, 2 through 3, verse 2. It tells us, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. Now, we're going to come back to Abraham uh, in a little bit in his kind of unexpected place in this story. But I first want us to consider the characters that uh, the Israelites called their fathers. These are the fathers of Israel, right? The fathers of the Hebrew people. Because the issue is that the world is full of sinners who have rebelled against God. And if the goal, if God's goal in kind of setting out a special chosen people is to redeem to make things right with that sinful and immoral world, it would seem 
that God chose a pretty unexpected cast of characters if we just look at the list of people who come after Abraham. So like Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac engaged in the sin of his father, Abraham. Right, so Isaac, what he did is uh, he had his wife and him and his wife walked into the territory of another king and that king noticed them there and Isaac said to that king, well, she's not my wife, she's my sister, right? Uh, so, that, uh, so that the king would not kill him and take his wife uh, and so that the king could have his way with his wife, right? That's Isaac, that's the character of Isaac. And Isaac himself was manipulated by his son, Jacob, to give the blessing of the firstborn to Jacob instead of Esau, who was his actual firstborn. So that's, that's very interesting. That's, the, that's part of the story of Isaac. That's something that we get to see about him. Uh, how about uh, Jacob? So Abraham was the father of Isaac. And so then we look further down in Abraham's line and we see Jacob. For what it's worth, Jacob was a liar and a manipulator. Uh, until God invaded his life and wrestled with him. And then God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, meaning one who contends with God, one who wrestles with God. That was the name that was given to Jacob and then to all of the people who came after Jacob. And then we could look on at Judah. It's very interesting to me. I was talking to Pastor Don about this this morning. It's very interesting to me that we would refer to Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I don't know if you've read much of Judah's story in the Old Testament, but like Moses, when he wrote down the book of Genesis, did not have many great things to say about Judah. Judah was the one of those who uh, betrayed his brother Joseph and sold him into slavery. And then certainly being no paragon of morality and virtue, uh, Tamar... Judah's daughter-in-law, who is also listed in this genealogy, seduced Judah. So Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, seduced Judah. And Judah, thinking that she was a prostitute, hired her as a prostitute. And that's how Zerah, the next person in this genealogy, was born. And the passage goes on and details more individuals who have spotty records for us. But I just want to hone in on something. God's plan to deal with a world stuck in sin is strangely full of people who are stuck in sin. Right? These people have significant blemishes on their record. Okay, so let's talk about Abraham. Abraham is the head of this lot. The one God spoke to you and gave a promise. He said, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And God chose Abraham as the one who would bear his promise. And the Jewish people celebrated their father Abraham, right? But I I want you to transport yourself back in time with me and just put yourself in God's shoes. If you were God, what would the father of your holy nation look like? Like, who would you pick? Perhaps you would pick somebody diligent in honoring heaven. I remember the story of Job. Like, Job was diligent in honoring heaven. Maybe we'd pick somebody like Job. Uh, Maybe you'd pick somebody who is honest, full of integrity, right? Maybe you pick somebody rich and well-established in their own territory. Who does God choose? He chooses Abraham. Abraham was a pagan worshiper of false gods. In fact, the land that Abraham came from, Ur, they worshiped the moon god. 
worshipers of the moon god believed that the moon god controlled the heavens and life on earth, which means that God chose someone who at the time was giving glory to another god. Abraham, he had a pattern of attempting to use his wife as a pawn. He told kings whose land they passed through that his wife, like I said, was actually his sister so that he could give her uh, up to be used by those kings and so that he could keep himself and his possessions safe. Uh, And eventually it created this situation where God had to show things to those kings, like give them visions or give them some inclination so that they could know that this man was following the true God and so that they could, uh, that God could basically step in and do what Abraham was not able to do and protect his wife. So Matthew's first timeline tells us about people who many times fail to display godly character, who have little knowledge of God or what he desires, and who frequently act in selfish ways. But God intervened in all of their lives and redeemed what to us would seem irredeemable. Abraham, he eventually abandoned his false gods to pursue Yahweh alone. Jacob eventually repented of his manipulative character. But more than what they did, God, by his grace, took them and grew them into a great nation. Right, that inherited a land that established themselves in that land that he had promised to them. That became known to many nations by a nation, as a nation who God had blessed. And so it's very interesting. This first part of the story shows us that God's redemption did not hinge on their character, but on his promise. That's the first part of the story. That's what Abraham's timeline shows us. And whatever ends up being impressive about the characters in the story is only impressive because they trusted God's promise. So then what of David? David. Let's look at David and his timeline. Matthew 1.6 tells us, Jesse, the father of David, the king. Everything about David being king is utterly unexpected. So first of all, the heroes of old, uh, in ancient stories and epics, the heroes of old were impressive people. Right, like uh, I, I, and when I was in college, I had to read the Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was this really, uh, like, very large in stature king. He wrestled with monsters and with oversized animals, uh, and everything about Gilgamesh was striking. And Gilgamesh got chosen to perform a particular task, and that's what the Epic of Gilgamesh is about. This task that he was chosen for. He was known as a large and in charge champion. That was uh, who he was, and he was presented that way. Or uh, the story of the Odyssey. The story of the Odyssey is about another character called Odysseus, And Odysseus was out to establish his own glory, right? He was out to prove how significant he was. And he was very wise and clever in how he could uh, interact with situations. He had a very sharp intellect, right? And so these are are the stories that history has told about heroes, about epics, right? Like these are what, uh, what history has for us. And these people who we have these stories about, they were already legendary in their own right. And the stories made them even more legendary. David does not fit the bill for that description at all. In fact, when God sent Samuel to Jesse's house to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king, 
Jesse says, oh, well, my sons get to be king. Let me line them up for you. And so he lines up all of his sons, and Samuel's like, well, okay, I'm going to go down the line. And Samuel went to each son that Jesse had lined up, and as Samuel goes to each son, he says, no, none of these are the king that God has chosen. Do you have any other sons? And Jesse goes, well, yeah, we have, we have David. <laughs> you know, we have, we have our shepherd. He takes care of our sheep and, and does certain things. But surely... Surely you don't want David. And Samuel says, well, bring him out. So, so Jesse brings out David, and Samuel sees David and realizes God speaks to him, says, this is the king that I have chosen. David was small in stature. David, for what it's worth, was seen as dull because he was a shepherd, right? Shepherds, they take care of the sheep. They spend their time with the sheep, right? You know, so, so David was uh, maybe perhaps viewed as dull. David had spent his whole life not really making much of an impression on people. But God chose David as king. And 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us why. It says that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, David was not of high nobility. David was not much to look at. But David trusted God's word and God's promises. And through David, God established Israel as a more prominent kingdom among the other kingdoms. Like David, in fact, if you look at all the the genealogy that Matthew set up, David is the pinnacle of Matthew's genealogy. Like, it, like it, it is like David is like the, the guy that we're cheering on and we're excited because we love what David has done for the nation of Israel. And Abraham, so the story of Abraham to David articulates the rise of Israel and David is at the high point of Israel. But David, too, fails to be an example to us of virtue. Because the next part of the genealogy, immediately after David's name is mentioned, it says this. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, the name of Uriah's wife, Uriah's wife does have a name. We read it in the story. The name of Uriah's wife is Bathsheba. But Matthew does not tell tell us her name because he's trying to make a point. David himself, the pinnacle of this genealogy, was an adulterer and a murderer. David slept with Uriah's wife. She became pregnant. To cover up his sin, David used his authority as king to make sure that Uriah died as a soldier on the battlefield so that in the eyes of David, David could take Uriah's wife as his own wife and appear to be doing something noble in the eyes of Israel as an act of virtue to honor what happened to Uriah. And Solomon was the son that resulted from the union of David and Uriah's wife. So starting with Solomon then, we begin to see the moral degradation of Israel. You start with Solomon engaging in idolatry because of the many wives that he had, many other nations, and then uh, Solomon's sons split the kingdom into north and south. And then in verses 7 to 10 of Matthew 1, you have a mixture of good but mostly evil kings who lead the nation of Israel into deeper and deeper idolatry against God. Until God says to them, I'm not going to bear with you any longer in this. And he allows them to be deported to Babylon. 
But note this, Matthew's point is not about the nobility or the prestige of the people in the genealogy. Matthew's point is the unexpected nature of this genealogy. The failures, the blemishes, the shortcomings that are represented here. These people, like in the midst of all of it, God was still keeping his promise. And so so Matthew's point is that God's redemption does not hinge on how great we are. And goodness, I hope that's true because uh, the list of the deportation, right? if David is like the high point of the list, this list of people in the deportation is just remarkably unimpressive. In fact, I can imagine any Jews that are reading this, the further that the list goes, the less recognizable that the names become. Right? So, so Matthew 1, 12 through 15. After the deportation to Babylon, you have Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud. And now we're starting to move into a category where we don't even have record, written record of some of these names. Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob. This is a list of people who were held in captivity. This list is a downward spiral from what once was a glorious Israel. This is a list of names that move away from the center of gravity and attention and significance to become this place that people just don't know about, these people that people don't know about. And notes for us, Israel's move too. In, in history and in time and geography, where Israel was at one time prominent, but then was deported, but then could return, but then becomes a vassal state of other nations, to the point where Matthew, at the time that he's writing this, Israel sits under the authority of Rome. And any Jew reading this list is meant to reflect on the hopelessness that this list represents. This list pinpoints the failure of those who are given responsibility. This list pinpoints the failure of human power and ingenuity. And it does all of that to tell a very unlikely story that hope still exists. Because in verse 16 it says this, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So here at the end of this sad state of affairs is a reminder of a promise. Messiah, Christ, he can redeem the unexpected things. Though many in this story can be highlighted for their faulty character, Matthew is going to go to great lengths after this. Like after he finishes this genealogy, right after this, he goes to great lengths to reflect the upright character of Mary and more specifically of Joseph. Right? You see, like we know that Mary conceived as a virgin. Right? That is what uh, history tells us. But every Jew who heard the story thought of her and Joseph, Mary and Joseph as lowlifes, 
right? Because they knew Jesus's story. They knew that Mary and Joseph were Jesus's parents. And, uh, and, and they thought, oh, they just made up that story to, to hide what really happened, right? Because they couldn't control themselves during their betrothal period. And so Matthew wants us to know the great lengths that Joseph went to in order to maintain moral purity, unlike David did. In order to protect his wife and family, unlike Abraham did. At great cost to his own safety and to his own reputation. Ended up having to flee to Egypt for three years. Because God spoke a word of promise to him. And he trusted God. And all through this story, the unlikely nature of those in the genealogy of the Savior of the world is emphasized. To make a point to us, God's redemption does not hinge on your impressiveness. Does not hinge on your impressiveness. Okay, so what? The problems in that timeline still run rampant today, and God is still redeeming. Just think about you. Like, I don't know what your worst failure was. I don't know what sin patterns you've entertained. I don't know the moments that made you starkly aware of your own brokenness, but I do know this. There is no failure that is too big for God to redeem. If you're a follower of Jesus, how big of a relief is it that you are not defined by the worst thing that you've done? Right? That you are not a lost cause. That God is saying to unlikely old you that I want to use you in the story that I'm writing. So think about that for you, right? I want you to think about that for you, but I want you to think about it for your neighbors too. The people that you're building relationship with, the people that you're rubbing shoulders with, your co-workers, uh, the, the people that you're spending time with, right? Because you have friends and neighbors and co-workers who have written off the possibility that God has any redemption for them. Because to one extent or another, they think that they are irredeemable. They've learned not to care about God. Because they think God doesn't have time for them, isn't concerned for them. Because they think they've gone too far down a certain road for God to intervene in their life. And you have a message about a God who pretty much exclusively redeems situations that are irredeemable. And those friends and neighbors need hope. So don't neglect to give it to them. So what, number two? Consistently with God, what is commendable is faith, not performance. Faith is taking God at his word. Right? That regardless of our failures, we choose to believe that God will stay true to his word. And for the church today, that truth is reiterated for us. In Hebrews 11, it tells us a story about people who, who had faith. It says in uh, Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. You want to know who was commended for outstanding faith in Hebrews chapter 11? Abraham. Jacob. David. 
And the invitation into his redemption story is extended to anyone willing to see his greatness played out in their own lives. So then, summing all of that up in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Right? The great cloud of witnesses, they are all flawed like we are, but their encouragement to us is loud. Lay aside every weight. Put off that sin which clings so closely to you. Don't stop running your race Look to Jesus, the one who has saved us and is coming back for us. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for this truth that you do not see like we see. You do not operate according to our expectations. That you have chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That you have chosen to intervene into lives and situations that seemed quite hopeless, and yet you revealed your hope. The story of how you came, how Jesus came through this lineage, through this people of Israel, this people who had consistently betrayed God and fallen away from him, Uh, The story speaks to us of your grace and your ability to redeem, your ability to keep your promise. So I pray that you would teach us what it means to have faith. But I pray also that you would teach us what it looks like to extend the hope of your redemption to other people. That as we reflect on how you have redeemed the most broken part of our lives, that we could speak to those who are working their way through their own brokenness and say, you're not too far gone. You're not beyond what he can do. He is inviting you into his story. Instruct us, Holy Spirit, to, to know how to speak these things and to know when to speak them so that we could extend invitation to those who are far from you into relationship with you so that they could have a light shining in their darkness. I thank you for these um, amazing truths of what you have done and keep our eyes fixed on you in this season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.